Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. The usual two segments today. In moments, we'll hear from Kristen Godsey on sex and gender in the former East Bloc. And at the bottom of the hour, the anthropologist Roger Lancaster will talk about crime, punishment, and the problems with the prison abolition agenda. I don't have anything this week about the events in Charlottesville, a city I spent three years in going to graduate school at the University of Virginia. But next week I'll be talking with Jason Wilson, who covered that grotesque display of fascist violence for The Guardian, and who's been writing about far-right violence for some time now. First, sex in the former communist world. In an essay that appeared in the print edition of the New York Times on August 13th, and in the longer version on the web, Kristen Godsey explained why, as the title of both versions put it, women had better sex under socialism. The web version of the piece links to a charming documentary that everyone should watch, after reading Godsey's piece, of course, about East Germany, with the title, Do Communists Have Better Sex? It's on the Daily Motions website. I don't know why, except for timidity, the title is phrased as a question because the documentary's answer is yes. A third related contribution that's also well worth checking out, and one that Godsey brings up in the interview, is Katie Baker's 2013 piece for Dissent. I don't think I can say the title on the air, but it argues that Danish social democracy ruins the game of American pickup artists because the greater material security women enjoy in that country makes them resistant to their dubious charms. I love it when an analysis of macro politics gets joined to the experience of daily life. Kristen Godsey is a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her book, Red Hangover, Legacies of 20th Century Communism, will be coming out from Duke University Press in October, and I'll have her back on the show to talk about it. Kristen Godsey. As you uh, begin your piece, as you point out in the beginning of your piece, you know, most Americans' memory or most Westerners' memories of or fantasies about the East Bloc were that they were grim, oppressed places where uh, uh, people shuffled through their daily lives as if they had weights on their shoulders. Whatever truth to this was, there it was, um, sex was something of an exception, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, well, that's certainly what this recent scholarship is beginning to show us. Since the fall of the Berlin Wall, there has been a progressive opening of archives and a new generation of young scholars who are interested in looking at everyday culture, everyday life during the communist era or the state socialist era in Eastern Europe. Early on, people rushed in to look at the secret police archives and the files about spies and everything. But now people are actually looking at everyday life. And one of the things that's been really fascinating is is something that I think anybody who grew up under communism knows, which is that people had ordinary lives. They fell in love. They went to school. You know, they flirted with each other. Um, they had great sex. Uh, they had parties. You know, they had a, a very robust social life and sociality associated with the kind of social security provided by the state. And I think that What's happened in the last, um, I would basically say, six or seven years is that the scholarship is really going in and looking at the intimate details of everyday life and particularly the question of sex in places like East Germany and Poland and Czechoslovakia and finding that these communist governments, you know, for all of their many faults, were actually quite concerned with people's personal sexual satisfaction in a way that I think is very surprising to people in the West. Yeah, a friend of mine from college who went to live in the Soviet Union for a year or two after college in the late 70s uh, said that she was impressed, you know, it's not about sex, but she was impressed by the intensity of friendships there, that since there wasn't a whole lot of things to do, people would go over to each other's house and maybe drink a lot of vodka, but also have very intense and intimate friendships, which I imagine now have fallen apart with the, with the market. But um, do, do you have any sense of that from your own research? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I hear over and over again when I'm doing research in the the region. I've lived and um, worked in Bulgaria for a long time. I was married at one point to a Bulgarian. I've lived also in the former Eastern Germany. And one thing that people lament is the time and attention that they had for their personal relationships, whether they be friendships or romantic relationships, or even family connections with your parents, um, with your children, with your siblings. People had a lot more time. Now, of course, it's partially because the state was quite repressive. There wasn't really a public sphere, so people retreated to the private sphere. That's the argument of a historian named Paul Betts, who wrote a great book called Within Walls about private life in the GDR. But it's also the experience, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of people have talked about the fact that um, there was also nothing to do in the sense that there weren't cinemas. You couldn't really go shopping. Obviously, there were no iPhones or iPads or Internet back then. Um, And so there were less sort of distractions. Personal life was something that you really cherished because it was a way in, in which you entertained yourself. But I think the third thing, which is something that I was trying to get out of this article, is the extent to which in a capitalist country where time is money, social relationships and romantic relationships have opportunity costs. I mean, a lot of my students at Bowdoin um, would talk about, oh, I don't have time for a boyfriend. I'm too busy. Or I don't have time for a relationship. There's a cost to spending time with your friends and your family, as we all know, because we all live such busy, crazy, multitasking lives. I think it's really interesting to imagine what social relationships are like when they're freed from these economic considerations, when the opportunity cost of your time are much lower. Yeah, well, we have the cliche that time is money, and there's a lot of <laughs> almost social criticism buried in that, that cliche. Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a, we, we are so short on time, especially now, I feel like, you know, as, as our societies speed up ever more, And we're inundated by information and the internet and, you know, 140 character tweets and just keeping up with social media and keeping up with our work and keeping up with the bills and all of the responsibilities that we have associated with our personal and professional lives. It takes time to nurture relationships. We all know that those of us who have been in relationships know, and those of us who have been in failed relationships also know that it's it's something that you have to um, you have to make room for in your life. And I think that sometimes in our in our society, there's a contradiction between the things that we say we value, which are these wonderful, intimate, personal relationships, and the time that we're actually willing to attend to those relationships, because we have so many other things competing for our attention. In your piece, you quote a woman in her 60s from Bulgaria, Anna Durcheva. Tell us her story. Yeah, I mean, so she was a fascinating woman. Unfortunately, she passed away at the end of 2014. You know, she had lived, um, she came from a very poor family in Bulgaria, and she was really, in some ways, educated by the state. Uh, Her mother could never have afforded to send her to school, and so she was always on a scholarship. She really kind of worked her way up through the ranks. She was very good at languages. I think for quite a while, she actually worked in a a forklift factory, of all things, Um, because they wanted women in in these male positions. So she was driving forklifts and working with forklifts. And at some point, I believe they were exporting Bulgarian forklifts or importing Bulgar- uh, British forklifts, or there was some kind of forklift exchange going on 
between Bulgaria and the United Kingdom. And Anna was um, the only person who actually not only spoke English, understood English, but also understood the language of forklifts. So she became a translator for the technical manuals. And um, through her, and then because she was very good at translation, eventually she ends up working for the Bulgarian Women's Committee. And through the Women's Committee, she ends up in, in Eastern Germany um, for eight years during the 80s, working for an organization called the Women's International Democratic Federation, which was a kind of an umbrella NGO affiliated with the Eastern Bloc that advocated for women's rights internationally. And, you know, her life was um, full of adventure. You know, according to her, she had a pretty full life and she was divorced. She was a single mom. But she felt that she really had the support of, of her society. And she never, at least in, in our conversations, I never got the impression. And she certainly never seemed to suggest that because she didn't have a man in her life, somehow her life was less fulfilling or she was economically suffering for the decision not to remarry. So I think that was something that she was really interested in was this idea that for all of the faults of the state socialist countries, and, and she was very honest about those faults, but that they did do something to emancipate women, to, to make women less economically dependent on men, to give them work and give them education, that, that was really valuable. And she very much felt that after 1989, a lot of that had been lost. There may not have been a man in her life, but she said her life was full of romance. Oh, right. I mean, she was, she was obviously, you know, she could do whatever she pleased. She got, you know, she was, you know, pretty open about that. And I think the thing was, was that she just didn't need to be, she didn't need somebody to support her. And for her, that was something really important, um, that, that she was really, truly independent, that her life, she was in charge of not only her life, but also of her body. Um, and that's what's so interesting about that dissent piece that, um, that ran in 2016 about these pickup artists who are failing to pick up women in Denmark because the Danish state basically provides women for, with all their needs and they don't need um, men in the same way, right? They're not attracted to the shiny objects, apparently, that pickup artists use to lure women. And I think, you know, so there's an interesting empirical question to be asked here, which is, you know, are women who are independent going to have healthier relationships with their, you know, male partners, of course, um, than women who are economically dependent on those partners. It's an interesting question. Well, do you have an answer? I mean, I yeah, I certainly think that the answer is probably yes. Um, one of the the most interesting things, as I mentioned earlier, that um, has come of this article is the the incredible blowback that I have gotten from people. Um, lots of knee-jerk anti-communist reactions, but also a lot of really interesting stereotypes about communist women as like hairy and ugly and smelly, or, you know, that the communist state provided women with childcare so that they could get their children and indoctrinate them into communist values earlier. It had nothing to do with women's emancipation, everything to do with indoctrination. But the others, some people were a lot more insightful. And, you know, one, some, I think a young man on Reddit that was commenting on the art, art article, you know, made the interesting deduction that if sex was better for women under socialism, that sex must be better for men under capitalism. <laughs> 
And I think that, you know, if you read Dagmar Herzog's work, she has a great 2010 article where she's talking to some East German men who are pretty honest about how they do much better sexually in the reunified Germany because money matters. Whereas in the old East, and this is a direct quote, they had to be interesting. And, God, right, you know, like the extra, the, the extra money that a doctor might earn compared to like a theater director didn't actually help you get women in the East. You have to be interesting. You know, and, and Herzog, you know, kind of ironically says, oh, my God, what pressure. Right. <laughs> but I do think it's, you know, I mean, it is an interesting question. If men if men are able to lure more women because of economic resources, what does that say about the women who are being lured? Are they are they going into those relationships because of the men or are they going into those relationships because of the money? Well, add this to the long list of reasons that uh, straight men have it too easy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm speaking with Kristen Godsey, a professor of Russian and East European studies at the University of Pennsylvania. A friend of mine who grew up in East Germany told me that she'd heard that something like a third of East German families broke up after unification with the West. Have you come across anything like this in your research? There's been a lot of really interesting studies. And of course, it, it, when you're just talking about the divorce rate, it's not only that there was a high rate of divorce, but there was also what the Germans called a birth strike after reunification. So a lot of people, um, women just decided to stop having children, um, which concerned the German authorities um, greatly. There was also a study that was done, I believe, in 92 or 93, right after reunification, that showed that there was a massive um, increase in male mortality. A lot of East German men just died. They either killed themselves or drank themselves to death. Um, that study was actually replica replicated in 2009 by a guy called David Stuckler um, for the British medical journal The Lancet. And he argued that there were like a million excess deaths because of, yeah, because of the, um, no, 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 the entire East Bloc. Um, so that, that includes Russia and yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so, but, but, and again, it was primarily felt um, among men, it was male mortality and the figures are really rather striking. And, you know, and he put it down to basically rapid privatization or what he called shock therapy. So the human costs of transition were huge, but nobody has really talked about them because all we think of when we think of the fall of the Berlin Wall is all those happy Germans dancing up on the wall um, or the scene in, you know, Wenceslas Square in Prague with, you know, Alexander Dubček um, embracing the crowds you know, we have these images of the jubilation of 1989, but we don't often think about the sort of social and human costs that followed the fall of the Berlin Wall. You mentioned also uh, a, a lot of contrast between uh, East German mothers and their daughters. And, you know, they're, um, they're very, very consciously aware of it. What, what, what are those contrasts like? Well, I mean, this is not just in East Germany. Obviously, it's in other parts of the Eastern Bloc. And, and I do also want to make clear that I'm not making a homogenization of the whole Eastern Bloc because there were, the situation was very different in places like Romania um, or Albania, where the sexual culture was never liberalized in the way that it was in places like East Germany or Poland or Czechoslovakia. And the Soviet Union is kind of a mixed um, bag, depending on the historical era. But I do really think that there is this generational divide, and I've heard it over and over again from women in the region that 
you know, these mothers, I mean, of course, all grandmothers put pressure, all, all, you know, mothers put pressure on their adult daughters to have children because they want to be grandmothers. I mean, that's a kind of a generalization, but it is something, especially in Eastern Europe, that happens often. But there's a kind of disjuncture between what the mothers believe is, you know, kind of, well, it's just easy. You just do it. It, it happens. And, you know, sort of you can leave your job and you maternity leave will take care of you. And you'll find a, a, a place in a, in a crash or a kindergarten. And the, the reality of these daughters' lives, where if they don't have a formal labor contract, you know, they're working contract to contract, they can't take maternity leaves, or they're afraid to take maternity leaves because they're afraid they're going to be fired or they're going to be replaced. Or technically, the state offers, you know, a subsidized kindergarten or a, a crash, you know, which is for, for smaller babies, but there's no places or there aren't places near your home. So you're having to drive an hour to drop off your baby to get to work. So the reality is, is very different for these two generations of women. I understand there's a kind of major communist reaction that child care, sorry, anti-communist reaction that child care is somehow, you know, a tool of state indoctrination. But, you know, in 2017, when we look around the world, many countries have child care. Many women in the United States have their children in child care. It's not about state indoctrination. It's about women being able to go to work and make sure that their children are well taken care of. And this is something that the United, women in the United States have been fighting for for ages, which we almost had, um, which Nixon vetoed out of Cold War considerations because he thought that it would destroy the family and that, you know, childcare was somehow communist. And I think that it's, um, it's something that is really profoundly felt by young women in the region now, or, or younger women in the region, whose mothers grew up under communism, whose mothers grew up and had their children before 89. There's just a very different experience of what it means to be a working woman. But it's clear that uh, childcare, uh, publicly provided childcare, uh, does reduce the power of men over women. So men who are deeply invested in patriarchal power uh, are, from their point of view, right to oppose it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. I mean, if women can have, I mean, and in fact, you know, several people have emailed me to, to point out that, you know, oh my God, the divorce rates were so high in the Eastern Bloc. And, you know, there was this breakdown of the family. Well, yes, there, there were high divorce rates because women who had abusive or alcoholic husbands um, could leave abusive relationships without any economic penalty. So, yes, if you're a man, a uh, heterosexual man in this country, absolutely invested in a kind of patriarchal family structure, then state subsidized childcare or really good quality childcare of any kind is a threat, absolutely 100%, to to the stability of that family of that family unit. Now. You know, again, to be clear, I think there are some people in this country who, for very traditional religious um, or personal reasons, have attachment to um, that family structure that has nothing to do with, like, oppressing women. But I do think that, you know, in a lot of other cases, you know, it is about oppressing women. It is about keeping women down because women are seen as a threat. Um, and one way to to keep women down is to, you know, make women fully bear the consequences of their reproductive biology by preventing the sort of supports that would help women combine economic independence with motherhood. Yeah, it was that Nixon childcare or the 
child care bill that Nixon vetoed that turned uh, George Gilder from a liberal Republican into a troglodytic reactionary. <laughs> let's step back uh, as we come to the end of this. Let's go back to, back in history. The early uh, Bolsheviks were very into sexual liberation and, and feminist agenda, uh, and then Stalin reversed that, right? Yeah. What's really important is to remember that people like Alexandra Kollontai uh, wrote the social basis of the of the women's question in 1909, well before the revolution, and that August Bebel wrote Women in Socialism in 1879. So, so for socialists, the question of women's um, equality and women's emancipation was was very much on the agenda well before the Bolshevik Revolution. And many of peop- many men and women who saw themselves as both Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, right, so were committed to the idea of, of women's equality. The sex part of that, I think, it really comes from, from Babel, but also from Engels, who argued that, you know, because women were essentially sort of a form of private property, women would benefit the most from the abolition of private property. Women would be economically emancipated from men in this really important way. And that that one of the structures, obviously, that held women into this kind of relationship of bondage with men was marriage, as it was um, formulated at the time. And so sexual liberation um, and um, liberalizing divorce laws and so on and so forth was a way to untether women economically from men. But the sex part, I also think if you read Kolontai, if you go back and you read her early essays, she really puts her finger on this question of women having sex for e- economic gain, that, that women are reduced to the status of chattel. Either they become prostitutes um, and they have to sell their, their bodies sort of piecemeal or they become wives and they sort of sell themselves into sexual relationships like forever. And that if you could free women, if you could free sexuality from economics, if you could free, you know, um, love, and she talks a lot about love from economic considerations, from this sort of transactional nature, that we would all, men included, and especially men, would be so much more satisfied with their lives because you would know that the person that you were in love with and who was in love with you who you were, um, you know, sharing amorous adventures with was, was in it for you and not for some other consideration. And I think that the, the, this, when, um, after the, the Russian revolution, when Kolontai really tried to mobilize women's issues in those early years before Stalin reversed everything, it was about trying to imagine a, a new society in which men and women were equal and which women were fully independent agents, not only economically, but also sort of almost spiritually in, in charge of their bodies and in charge of their their affections and able to give them at will freely without any co- coercion. And, you know, I, I know there are so many stereotypes about, you know, communist sluts or whatever, but it's really useful to go back and read those early texts and understand that what they were really talking about was love and romance, and not just sex and sexuality. I was Kristen Godzi, a professor of Russian and East European Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. You can find her piece, Why Women Had Better Sex Under Socialism, on the New York Times website. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
Some of Youth Against Fascism by Sonic Youth. Next, Crime and Punishment. At its recent national convention, the rapidly growing Democratic Socialists of America passed a resolution calling for the abolition of police and prisons. I find this a worthy but impossible goal and have never been able to find a coherent and believable statement of how such a thing would work. Trying to suss it all out, I turned to Roger Lancaster, a professor of anthropology and cultural studies at George Mason University, who studied the topic closely. Roger Lancaster. With uh, DSA voting on a resolution uh, to abolish police and prisons, this uh, topic always oh, never far from the surface, but has been even more prominent lately. What do you make of this? Is this a plausible goal for politics to abolish police and prisons? We can all sit around and think up ideal futures in which there are no things that we find to be bad or unpleasant. And then we can all kind of orient our politics around that. But that doesn't seem to me to be where productive politics comes from. I don't think it's a good move. I don't think it's a good analysis. It's fundamentally not grappling with the realities of prisons as institutions on a world scale at this particular historical juncture. I think there's an awful lot that's awful about American prisons. There's an awful lot that needs radical denunciation and radical change. But, uh, you know, saying we're going to abolish all prisons and get rid of them uh, is kind of like trying to solve the debt crisis by getting rid of money. I've never actually been very clear on what the call is for. I mean, I've asked people uh, what this means uh, a bunch of times. I read the Angela Davis book on the topic that is often cited, and I still really don't understand what the goal of prison abolition is. Do you have any clear idea of what it is besides the statement of that lofty aim? I wish I could tell you that there was a clearer aim there, but there isn't. It's kind of a vain wish. When I have conversations with with people about this, it's often they don't want either crime or punishment in the future. And I'm like, come on, seriously now? I think it's a vague aspiration, and I think it has kind of religious roots. It sort of sets itself up for churchiness, if you really want to, to think about where a lot of this comes from. My take is, look, we know what works. We know what works well. We know what doesn't work. We have good models of various sorts in front of us. They all involve something called the prison. It doesn't look anything like American prisons, but they all involve some kind of system of corrections, an ideal of rehabilitation, restraints on punishment, and then you kind of work from there along humanitarian and reform lines until you get the institution to be 
in the best sense of the word, disciplinary. Disciplinary the same way that schools and hospitals and medical treatment and so on are, are disciplinary. Well, I think our vulgar Foucaultians uh, think that's just the problem. It's all too much discipline and we all need to be free. Foucault at least didn't have a naive idea that you could do away with discipline, that, that it would no longer be necessary. Now, sometimes if you push, like they, they do have a fallback position. I mean, the abolitionists claim that they're going to uh, devolve the functions of things like policing and adjudication and even some, some sense corrections, I suppose, to, uh, to the community. In the community, people will practice restorative justice rather than rehabilitative justice, or even more so rather than punitive justice, right? They fall back on community, but, I, I, you know, all right, I live in a community, but I, I, can't, I can tell you that I live in a community like most people live in a community in an urban setting. I know half of the neighbors who live on my apartment floor. Uh, I know maybe a dozen people scattered around the city well. In other words, my community is a community that I create and that I navigate, and it doesn't produce institutions that you can devolve functions like corrections to. The only institution that, that comes up in these conversations that plausibly might do something like this is churches. I don't go to church. I don't recommend it for people. I don't miss it. My parents made me go to church when I was a kid. It was a miserable experience. And, and I don't see that as a model for how we're going to move the dial on America's extraordinarily punitive and awful prison system. When people talk about community, they frequently talk about community very recklessly. I'm not quite sure precisely what they mean. Uh, you know, there are all, all kinds of communities. Uh, I live in a very large borough of New York City, Brooklyn, with two and a half million people, many, many different neighborhoods. The scope and nature of this community is always very elusive. Lynching was a kind of community justice, wasn't it? There are antecedent models of communal justice, and stonings and lynchings come out prominently uh, on that scale, the rise of a professional system guided by the state was designed to cut back on communal justice and to humanize it and to advance it. I, I think as, as socialists, as progressives, as leftists, we have to be able to say that for all its flaws, the state system is an advance over communal justice. Well, it seems to me that the biggest flaw of our system of, of justice is not uh, it, its principles or what it aspires to, adversaries working things out in courts, you know, being judged by a jury of your peers uh, based on evidence and, you know, argument and uh, judgment. Those are very good things. And the problem seems to me is that not everybody enjoys those benefits. Uh, in fact, uh, quite often the cops and the, and the prosecutors abuse every one of those uh, those rules. Um, but it doesn't invalidate the uh, the concept itself. Right. And this is where I start. You know, I'd like to engage people who might think that abolition is a great idea, but I, I'd like to kind of start by saying something like this. Uh, the American prison system is a rogue institution. It has not been on a continuous reform trajectory for the last hundred years uninterrupted. 
it's gone rogue as an institution. It's, it's, it's performing in a way that's radically different from the way its peer institutions are functioning in other countries. See, this is, this is where things get tricky, right? I mean, 90% of what the abolitionists say is true and, and it's just and it's right. It's, it's basically pointing out the unmitigated horrors of mass incarceration, miserable prison conditions, and so on. But those conditions didn't emerge naturally or organically out of the development of the institution. Those developed because the US system was pushed off the path of reform in those crucial years between 1968 and 1973. If you want to see what prisons look like when they stay on the path of reform, we have good examples all across Northern Europe. They don't have mass incarceration. They don't have awful prison conditions. They have very small, compact humanitarian prisons. Let's go back to that period you were talking about, you know, as the 60s turned into the 70s. Going into that, people thought that the prison was actually a waning institution, right? The prison population was declining. Incarceration rates were declining. And then suddenly they shot up. What happened? Yes, well, there, there you have it. Look, Angela Davis is right when she says, that, uh, that, that the history of prison is reform. But she uses that argument to set up, you know, so that's why we're not in favor of reform. We're in favor of abolition. So the, the abolitionists will all quote you chapter and verse on that, and they'll say, with evangelical zeal, you have to choose between abolition and reform with the idea that reform is the inferior option. What Davis forgets and what the abolitionists never really learned, the younger ones anyway, is that that system of reform was realizing results in the 1960s. It accelerates in the 1960s. Uh, the prison was, in fact, shrinking. Uh, the prison not only was shrinking and getting better. All right. I, let's admit there was still an awful lot of bad prisons around. And Attica is, is kind of that glaring case that everybody knows about. But astute observers were watching the statistics and they were watching the decline of incarceration. They were watching the fact that the justice system was coming up with alternatives to prison. They were sending most people into parole programs rather than directly into, into prison. Um, so people concluded that the prison was reforming itself out of existence. Um, between 1968, I, there are reasons why we could look at these dates. I mean, 1968 is when Congress passed and Lyndon Johnson reluctantly, and I underscore this because he understood this to be you know, aimed squarely at the heart of his reforms. Lyndon Johnson reluctantly signed into law the uh, Safe Streets Act, the, the first major crime control bill that, that um, kind of becomes a blueprint for a lot of subsequent efforts. Um, so that was the first sign of a rollback. That was the first augmentation in policing. That was the first kind of legislative effort that was designed to stymie the, the great society reforms. Um, it didn't quite stop it. I mean, prison reform was, was still going pretty strong up until the early 70s. By the early 70s, Though it was very clear that the reaction, the, the backlash, and the backlash was in no small part a race backlash, 
the backlash was gaining grounds and it was using crime as the issue that it went forward on. So crime control became politicized at a time when uh, a lot of Americans were, were clenching up in reaction to anti-war protests, in reaction to urban riots, in reaction to the gains of black people. But there was also an increase in crime. The period of the 60s was a, was a period of lots of things shaking and coming apart. Starting in the early 60s, crime rates go up and they go very high by the early 70s. And that's where they stay for 20 years. So, yes, the, the conservatives had phenomena that they could point to. By 1973-74, the conservatives are saying, look, reform doesn't work. We tried reform. Reform let the genies out of the bottle. Reform was associated with spiking crime rates. They initiated that that long period of counter-reform that we're not quite out of yet. But for the last 50 years, we've really been, you know, it's, we've really been living in a period of counter-reform. So for, for those activists who want to say that the prison is always about reform, well, that might be true if you're planted in Sweden or if you're planted in Norway, but that's certainly not true if you're planted in the United States. We have a, now a half century of the opposite of reform. Part of what agitates me a great deal about the current conversations is that I hear abolitionists repeating some of the things that the left was saying in the early 1970s that I think helped undermine the legitimacy of reform. The abolitionists are insistent that reform is not the way forward. Well, we've heard this before. This was the position of some of the new left, and it helped undermine the progressive consensus among scholars and criminologists and penologists, and it helped contribute to that nothing works consensus. The, the nothing works consensus had gelled very strongly by 1973-1974. If you say nothing works, that leaves a perfect opening for a Yahoo with a nightstick and a pair of handcuffs. If nothing works, then the only thing you can do is to lock up the bad man and keep him there for as long as possible. That's the natural outcome of saying nothing works. Before we talk about uh, some things that might work or more humane ways of approaching this issue, I wonder if some abolitionists think that we would somehow, with the proper set of social transformations, end up with a, a world with no crime, so we wouldn't need prisons. I've heard this in conversations I've had over the last week or two. I've been, hear I've been hearing that, that we should aim for a world without crime or punishment. I don't, I'm not quite sure what to say about that. I think that's a little bit silly, really. I mean, I, I don't have a particularly negative view of human nature, and I certainly don't take a Hobbesian view of, of, of what the state always does. Crime and punishment come into existence together. They're mediated through the law. We, we know that something is a crime precisely because it's punished. You can't have one thing without the other. I don't see the point in get, of engaging in empty, utopic gestures around stuff like this. There's, there's too much at stake. I'm speaking with Roger Lancaster, a professor of anthropology and cultural studies at George Mason University. There are models elsewhere in the world you've, you've alluded to, some of the Scandinavian countries, for example. What are the principles of this kind of better way of doing punishment? The Scandinavians do it very well, but so do the Germans, by the way. The inputs and the outcomes in the German system don't look that radically different 
from from the way the Scandinavian system works. Even though I think we'd have to say that Germany is, a, is you know historically a much more curmudgeonly and conservative uh, political setup than 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 anything in in Scandinavia. I'd like to point to the, the the example of Finland, and I picked Finland out in particular because, unlike most of the other countries, it starts out with a prison system. In the 1950s, it looks a great deal like what the American system looks like now. The Finnish system looked a lot like the Russian system. They practiced mass incarceration. They had very long prison sentences, often for minor crimes. They had a very high recidivism rate. Obviously, the setup didn't work well. Um, and uh, they also had very high crime rates. In a lot of ways, Finland is like the U.S. in microcosm that way. My sense is also that the Finns have a more punitive approach to crime even now than, than the other uh, Scandinavians do. In other words, the Finns don't tell you that prison is going to be good for you. Uh, they, they say, you're being, no, this is punishment, right? So, so Finland is, is, is interesting that way, right? But in the 1950s, they embarked on a course of gradual reforms undertaken on a humanitarian and social democratic basis. They weren't entirely uninterrupted. If I'm remembering my history correctly, the government actually intervened at some point in the mid to late 1950s to say, whoa, this is going too far too fast. You're at risk of letting the criminals get away with it. But, but by and large, that, I mean, that didn't stop things. And by and large, the, the kind of forward momentum of the reforms stayed in place. And the nature of the reforms were very clear. One of them is that you don't politicize crime issues. You don't go to the public with it. You don't campaign on it. You let the experts alone. You let, you let the experts run the prison system. You, you let the experts figure out what the crime sentences ought to be. You hand it over to a commission to rewrite the penal code and you, the, the, you know, the parliament will pass it when, it, when the commission has, has done its work. And the results are pretty spectacular. I mean, Finland drove its incarceration rate down, I think at the lowest it was about 49 per 100,000. It's sort of, sometimes it goes up to about 60. It's usually in the 50s. So 50 per 100,000, that's less than one-tenth the rate of uh, the U.S. rate at the moment, right? So it's a small, compact prison system. The conditions are humane. Many of the prisons ha are open prisons. Uh, inmates are allowed to leave by day. They work. They go shopping, but they have to come back at night. They're not. They're not at liberty uh, to to do as they please. Um, the punishment basically is that you're deprived of your liberty for a set period of time. You get out early for good behavior. You get out early if you show that you've reformed. I like the expression they use, right? They say, you're not, we're not sending you to prison to be punished. Being sent to prison is your punishment, right? In other words, your, your, your punishment is being deprived of absolute freedom. That process you described of uh, rational legislation and uh, faith in scientific expertise um, sounds so far to the American way of doing things that I can't imagine it ever happening here. Well, we tried it in the 1960s for a while, but then there was the backlash, right? 
In other words, yes, you're absolutely right. One of the things that's weird about the American system is that we tend to democratize crime issues. I find it kind of surprising that if you listen to the abolitionists, a lot of what they seem to be talking about is democratizing the, the question of crime and punishment. The American experience would not suggest that that's the way to go. It certainly wouldn't. What do you make of the idea that uh, James Whitman, the Yale law professor I had on a couple of months ago, his argument is that there's something deeply punitive in American culture, and our system of mass incarceration reflects that. Do you think he's got a point? Whitman is a, is a wonderful scholar, and, and you know, you, one has to read everything that he's said on the subject carefully and, and, and take it seriously. I've always read his earlier work, at any rate, as showing that the American system was not uniquely punitive, that, that uh, through the 19th century, U.S. prisons were a model of progressive, humane, enlightened penal reforms, and Europeans used to come here to tour our prisons so that they could learn how to make their prisons better places. I think there's a weird sense where punishment is very democratic in America. That's probably part of the problem, and I, 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 you know, I don't have a simple solution for, for, for getting around it. I mean, in the, in the colonial period, punishment uh, was, a, was very much a democratic thing. Uh, communal justice was dispensed very rapidly and, and, and very briefly in, in, in the colonial period. The Fens aren't necessarily gentle in their thinking about crime either, right? This is, the, this is the interesting thing, I think. Most of the criminologists who have studied the Finnish system, including ex-convicts who have been through the system, right, are, are, are very clear that public opinion in Finland, is, it takes a very dim view of crime, and and if you if you simply let the public decide, uh, the public would often punish severely. That's one of the reasons you have state-sanctioned institutions that stand as intermediaries, that set rules, that have guidelines, that try to calibrate punishment to the best available knowledge, and and so on. What Finns do right now, what Swedes do right now, might look barbaric 20 years from now to Finns and Swedes. They, they might revise their ideas, and, uh, but you, you have to live in the history that you live in. You have to work with the conditions that you work with. You're, you're immersed in a material situation, and you have to, to work from that. You, you don't just imagine an ideal utopia in the future and say, yes, we should all shoot for that. Okay, finally, uh, there was a moment a little while ago where it seemed like elites were changing their minds about the policy of mass incarceration. We've actually seen uh, in the last couple of years uh, DAs winning elections in jurisdictions around the country on uh, a platform of reversing mass incarceration. That all seems to have crashed in the Trump Sessions era, but uh, do you think that we can recover that uh, some of that momentum and accelerate it? I think so. The, the, the public opinion polls that I see, uh, including some very recent ones, would suggest that most Americans think we have too damn many people in prison. And that's actually a bipartisan, not much that, that liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans agree on, but that might be one of the things that, that, that they're actually in agreement on. Trump, the Trump administration is an outlier on this. 
I, I don't think you're going to see anything good happen under this administration. There's still a kind of a gathering tide of opinion that we punish too much, too severely, and that it's time to, to cut that back a bit. But the abolition argument doesn't really do that move in any favors. The abolition argument makes it harder for those of us who are advocating for reforms to do so with credibility, in part because the, the public, at least the public as I imagine it, starts to associate reform with abolition and abolition with a kind of a pie in the sky, half-baked, not very well thought out vision. And um, who would want to trust their children's futures to that? After we recorded the interview, Roger sent along this addendum. I had a long conversation a few days ago with a friend who's now in his early 30s and has spent most of his adult life in prison. I laid out for him the debate between the abolitionists and reformers wanting to know what he thought. His immediate reaction was, why are you having debates with crazy people on the internet? When I tried to discuss with him how the abolitionists want to devolve corrections to the community, his reaction was sardonic. Oh, you mean like stoning and lynching? His last take was something like this, though, and I think this might actually be a path forward for us to think about. Look, I've spent the last 18 months locked up in a cell with no sunlight. A lot of the time I've been in solitary. Last week they wouldn't allow my counsel to have a private visit with me. If you told me that I could stay in a dormitory with a window, take classes, share a common area kitchen that looks like it was furnished by Ikea, and even leave by day to work, I wouldn't call that a prison. Maybe you could just get the abolitionists to rebrand the Scandinavian model, and we'd all just call it abolition instead. I was Roger Lancaster, a professor of anthropology and cultural studies at George Mason University. He is not funded by the Koch brothers. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go with this. We don't need this fascist groove thing, a 1980 anthem inspired by the election of Ronald Reagan. Till next week, bye. Fascist groove thing. Brothers, 